0: Deep pattern,
1: downfield, touchdown Miami! What a throw, Devontae Parker! Holy smokes, what a drive! What is up, Dolph fans, and welcome to the Drive Time Podcast, part of the Miami Dolphins Podcast Network, covering your team, your Miami Dolphins. How's it going, everybody? I am your host, Travis Wingfield, and as always, each and every single day, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, you know what time it is. It's Deep Dive Wednesday, so we're going to open up the analytics. I want to take a look at the difference between Miami's successful offensive drives and the ones that end without points. So we'll pull back the kimono there. We'll continue our week-long celebration of Don Shula and hear from resident football historian and defensive coordinator Josh Boyer on the legendary Miami Dolphins coach. You will not want to miss that. And we'll finish up by breaking down Byron Jones' game on Sunday, as well as the Sunday night post game show with yours truly, Seth Levitt and OJ McDuffie. We talked about that in the Dolphins defensive showing in that game from the Baptist Health Studios inside the Baptist Health Training Complex. This is the Drive Time Podcast. That's another
0: Miami Dolphins.
1: Come celebrate the life of Don Shula on Saturday at 4.30 Eastern at Hard Rock Stadium. The free event is open to the public and will feature remarks from the Shula family with panel discussions from several Dolphins alumni. Attending fans will also receive a special commemorative Don Shula 347 patch, which of course signifies his NFL record 347 wins as a head coach. Registration is now open at dolphins.com slash Don Shula. The Dolphins offense, going into the deep dive portion of the podcast already, let's crank this thing up, has been on the field for 31 drives this season, and I wanted to take a look at the differences between when they scored points or were in position to score points on drives compared to those possessions in which they didn't score points, so ending in turnovers or kicks, or I guess punts. And so I wanted to look at that and how the differences between those two things occurred, and on seven of the 31 possessions... The defense was not the only factor contending against Miami in terms of trying to stop them. The clock was the other factor in those instances. End of half, end of game, behind on the scoreboard, forcing the Dolphins pace or forcing their hand to go up pace and not necessarily up tempo, but just to play with the mindset that we need points and we have to get them fast, which of course can minimize a couple of things, right? Minimizes the short passing game to an extent. There was plenty of passes within these these research projects I did throughout the course of the day on Tuesday to find these statistics where they were still checking the ball down, like on the first drive following the Raiders 11 point lead in Las Vegas on Sunday, there were some short passes behind the line of scrimmage to Will Fuller, to Jalen Waddell, some check down stuff to Miles Gaskin. And then even after Miami scored that field goal to get to within eight and getting the football back with roughly six minutes to play, the same thing. There were still some short passes. So it doesn't completely negate that element of the offense, but it certainly creates a level of urgency, which the Dolphins and all teams will have urgency on every drive But there are certainly moments within the game where the urgency is heightened. And those moments, I thought, with the way this Dolphins' successful scoring drives compared to the ones they don't score on, with the two of those things kind of being the most notable factor between those two differences, I wanted to go ahead and take a look at it. So on five of those seven possessions where the clock was really up against Miami and even there was a six that produced a missed 48 yard field goal on Sunday from Jason Sanders at the end of the first half which we know is well within his range so really in position to score on six of the seven drives in which the clock was a factor and those drives were halftime against the Patriots because the other possessions in that game for Miami did not require any sense of urgency is the wrong word to use there but Requiring the team to have to know that they have a finite amount of time to execute what they have to execute. So, the end of the first half in the Patriots game was the only instance in which that occurred because Miami had the lead from the opening drive of the third quarter in that game. And then, obviously, in the first half, you don't have to contend with that unless you're way behind the scoreboard, which again, they never trailed in that game at all. Or did they? No, they never trailed in that game. So, there was no instances besides the end of the first half in that game. Buffalo game, same type of story. Obviously, after going down 14-0 and then late in that game down by a few touchdowns, you you crank it back up. But since that game kind of got out of hand, the only drive that really applies in that one, again, the end of the first half against the Buffalo Bills. And then after Las Vegas took their 25-14 lead, the 11-point lead with roughly 13 minutes to go, knowing you need two scores, you're going to have to probably you might give up some more points again to the opposing offense because they're so hot and they were just continuing to find success in the passing game for that Raiders offense. I considered all the rest of the drives in that game for Miami up against the clock, 11, 11 points down a quarter to play you, you kind of have to kick up the urgency and that continues obviously into the overtime period down by three and contending with the fact that the clock expires and you could be forced to situ- in a situation where you're looking at a tie game or possibly losing at the end of that game. So those are the drives we looked at. And on those seven possessions, Miami scored or was in position to score on six of those drives. The other 24 offensive starts for Miami produced only three scores all season. They were all touchdowns, the opening drives of the first half and second half against New England, and then, of course, the 34-yard drive after the turnover on downs in Las Vegas in the first quarter in that game. Those three drives produced touchdowns. The other 21 drives for Miami that were in regular parts of the game and, you know, not necessarily scoreboard or down and distance dictated, those drives did not produce any points. They ended in turnovers or punts. So what's the difference? What's the difference between those two factors of offensive possessions? The most significant contrast came via average depth of target in the passing game. And it's hardly rocket science, right? Contending with the clock changes your offensive approach. It removes the running game. It increases your attempts to the perimeter and the requirement that you have to have chunks of yardage and you can't do a three or four yards and a cloud of dust at a time and march down the field and eat the entire clock because you're playing against the clock. So, On the seven drives up against the clock, Miami's average depth of target is 11.1 yards down the field. The other 24 possessions produced a depth of target of 4.9 yards. And Tua Tungavailoa was the quarterback on just one of those seven possessions, and his A-dot just on that one possession jumped up to 13.6 yards on that lone end-of-half possession against the Patriots, up from an average of 7.0 on all other Tungabailoa led drives. Now, for Jacoby Brissett and a much larger sample size, because six of the seven drives we're talking about here were with Jacoby Brissett under center, and he averages 10.8 yards per pass on those six possessions where pace was a bit of a necessity. And those drives include the end of the first half against Buffalo, end of the first half against Las Vegas, and the four possessions spanning the fourth quarter and overtime following Las Vegas' touchdown that stretched the lead to 11 points with just over 13 minutes to play in regulation. Now, context is always required to support the numbers, right? That's what this podcast does. It talks about analytics. It talks about tape. It meshes the two together. And we're not going to give you shock jock takes for trying to get views and clicks and eyeballs on the podcast. We want to do a good show here. That's what we do. That's what I believe is good football podcasting and good football content. So the context in this case deals with how the defense defends Miami. And again, game situations like score, down a distance, and clock will dictate the calls of the offense. It's not just what the defense does, right? So opposing defenses have played two high structures against Miami, too high safeties. And I talked about this on my favorite night of the year so far still, the draft night at Hard Rock Stadium, when we were on the YouTube channel and, and doing our thing with John Kenjemy and Channing Crowder, I talked about how, hey guys, now you can't defend this defense with single high safeties anymore because of the speed on the offense they have to stretch you down the field. And that's been relatively true so far. Opposing defenses have played Miami with two high safeties on 62.8% of the Dolphins' snaps. and That's a very high number compared to league average. It's significantly over league average. Now, one upshot of that deployment, which was over 90% of Las Vegas's snaps in that game in week number three, was that Miami's season high in rushing came that week as well, 133 yards on the ground, including an eight yards per carry average in the first quarter that helped Miami race out to a 14-0 lead in that contest. And Jacoby Brissett touched on the distinction for Miami between those late, successful drives compared to the struggles early in games. We covered it on the podcast a few times. It's like a sin for that defense to get the ball pushed behind them, he said, talking about a Gus Bradley defense, a coach that he knew from his time playing in Jacksonville or playing with the Colts, rather, up against the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Coach Eric Studisville touched on this topic at his Tuesday media availability about the need for explosive plays. And here's what he said. We, we're talking a lot about that, trying to find explosive plays and ways to get explosive plays. We did take some shots the other day in that game in Las Vegas, but we're always trying to find explosive plays. We're constantly talking about it. We're trying to put them in. We're trying to get to them, but we're limited at times because of what the defense gives us. So we have to call them at the right time. We have to be prepared and we have to dial those up when we think we have the best chance to execute those. So there's what the Dolphins coaching staff comes down on how you balance taking your shots versus what the defense gives you. And that was one of the key points of the podcast last week, right? was like, take advantage of the fact that they want to play so far off, sustain drives, give your defense some rest, and try to chip away at that thing. I thought it was a good strategy for the Dolphins personnel they had as far as the quarterback situation and the receivers they had active and the balance of that with what I was hoping and thought could be a strong running game in that game. And just to kind of break this thing down to the individual and the drive-specific So in total, Miami has 466 air yards on 42 throws on the seven drives we discussed. It's 11.1 yards average depth of target, seven drives, five scoring drives, a touchdown, three field goals, and then a punt from the 38-yard line that was within Jason Sanders' range, obviously. And then Tua has 68 air yards on five passes, 13.6 a dot, compared to 211 air yards on 30 throws and the seven yards of average depth of target. For Jacoby Brissett, 398 air yards on 37 throws on those seven drives, a 10.8 A-dot. And when he's not in those hurry-up situations or more urgent situations, 243 air yards on 62 throws, a 3.9 A-dot, giving you a grand total for Miami of 4.9 yards average depth of target. And again, two two deep safeties on 62% of their snaps. Now, Miami's success doesn't necessarily just happen because of those deep shots. And they certainly haven't happened with having completed passes on those deep shots. Tua throwing the football 20 or more yards down the field this year is two for four with 66 passing yards. And Jacoby Brissett is just one for six with 27 passing yards. But their success has come when they did force the issue and push the ball down the field. So is that correlation worth exploring there? Maybe, maybe not. But I found it interesting enough to talk about and even more so to look at the tape and when you look at Miami's deep shots on the All-22, it's not just because the defense started creeping up and playing closer to the line late in the game. They took chances to make them defend our playmakers and you saw the opportunities. Devontae Parker nearly got his hands on one down the middle of the football field. I think it was a a nearly 50-yard defensive pass interference because it was a 50 air yard throw from Jacoby Brissett, and it was a great play by the defensive back. And if Parker goes and elevates for that ball, maybe, maybe he gets a DPI call for 50 yards. Matt Collins did score a 32-yard DPI on the deep shot for him in the end zone, and that gives you, you know, four plays from the one-yard line for a touchdown. So very effective in that regard. And then Will Fuller, for my money, should have had a 34-yard DPI that would have put Miami on the one-yard line with a first and goal and one yard away from victory and a two-and-one record. So the vertical shots almost got Miami to the ultimate destination, which is the winner's circle and a two-and-one record right now. And I can distinctly remember four other deep shots, the Waddle and Parker balls in the New England game, 36-and-30-yard completions, and the near 25-yard touchdown to Albert Wilson that was swatted away at the very last moment By Jalen Mills. And what did that do? But provide more success for Miami because both those drives, the 36-yard pass and the 30-yard pass, had a touchdown and a field goal to result the end of those drives. And that also the field goal drive was the same one as the 25-yard attempt to Albert Wilson. So within the context of those plays, completing them or not completing them, getting DPIs or whatever it might be, within those drives. Miami had success. So that was kind of my point for that study. I hope that teaches us something. We'll see how Miami reacts and goes forward with that. We heard Eric Sudesville talk about his desire, the Dolphins' offensive staff desire, to build those shot plays in against what you look at from the defense, and hopefully our playmakers can get on top of that defense and make some more plays down the field. Let's go ahead and shift gears here real quick now to the defense, and primarily, Josh Boyer and his Tuesday press conference. Because last summer, when legendary Dolphins defensive coordinator Bill Arnsparger, who I don't think gets enough credit from the fan base. Maybe they do. Maybe I haven't heard enough of it. But this is one of the greatest DCs of all time. And last year, he was rewarded for his work in football with the Dr. Z, the Paul Zimmerman Lifetime Achievement Award as an NFL assistant. And Boyer detailed last summer his appreciation for not just Bill Arnsbruger, but the history of the game and the fact that he read Bill Arnsbruger's book, which is titled Bill Arnsbarger's Defensive Football Coaching. Easy enough, Coach. We appreciate the simplicity in the title. Save the complex stuff for what's inside those covers. And, you know, he's not just a – Coach Boyer, I should say. is not just a master of modern defense, but those that paved the way before him. Here's what he said last year. I went back and found the quote. I was really excited about the fact – that uh, just so happened that Bill Arnsberger was awarded the Dr. Z award this year, which I think he is more than deserving. Arnsbarger's book is one of those. If you have pretty good knowledge, you'd think it's a good book. If you're a little bit novice in it, it can be a tough read. I think there's things you can pull from everything End quote there from Josh Boyer. So naturally we had to ask coach Boyer. I did to weigh in on his memory of the NFL's all time winning as head coach, who actually wrote the foreword in Bill Arnsbarger's Arnsbarger's coaching defensive football let's go ahead and roll coach's two minute and 57 second history lesson on Don Shula and his connection to Miami's legendary hall of fame coach
2: well it's kind of interesting my introduction to coach Shula it really started with my sister uh who's two years younger than me uh she shares the same birthday as uh coach Shula uh who was born on January 4th 1930 uh My sister was obviously born a little bit later, January 4th, 1979. Um, So uh, she actually grew up a Dolphins fan and uh, because she shared the same birthday with Don Shula. Um, So when we were kids, uh, you know, obviously you guys have heard me talk before my father, you know, he's a, he's a high school football and baseball coach. And has been coaching football for over 40 years You know, I had a Ken Anderson poster on my door, and my sister had a Bob Greasy poster on on her door. Um, And it just so happened, you know, growing up in Ohio, uh, Don Shula was an Ohio guy. um, You know, went to Harvey High School in Painesville, which is just a suburb of Cleveland. Uh, He went to John Carroll University, which uh, was in the same conference as Muskingum College, where I went to school. And um, so, you know, every time that we traveled to John Carroll, you'd see, you know, the Don Shula uh, athletic facility there at John Carroll. Uh, And then I think, you know, the historian part of me really loves uh, Coach Shula's story, uh, because obviously he was uh, drafted in the ninth round by the Cleveland Browns. Uh, He played halfback at John Carroll. And then uh, Paul Brown ended up uh, moving him to defensive back. And, uh, you know, which and then obviously Coach Shula had a defensive background from from there on out. But really, you know, when you look at Paul Brown's legacy and the number of people that, you know, that he's had a hand on. And obviously, you know, Chuck Noll was there, too, which Coach Shula, uh, you know, coached with Chuck Noll as well. And, you know, those are two Hall of Fame coaches. And interestingly, uh, Coach Shula was uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, pro football hall of fame in 1997. That's the same year my sister graduated. So, um, you know, there, there was a little bit of characteristics there. And then I would just say, you know, coach Shula's ability, um, to maintain, uh, you know, winning seasons, I I believe in his coaching career, he only had two, two losing seasons. And I, I know he was very successful with the Colts. He was very successful here in Miami. And then obviously he really spent, um, you know, even when he was done coaching, he spent, uh, you know, about 50 years in the Miami organization. So uh, I think it's awesome uh, that they would celebrate his life and uh, his legacy to pro football, his legacy to the Miami Dolphins. And obviously there's not enough good things that you could say about him. It's just kind of an interesting fact that, you know, my introduction to him basically started with my sister having the same birthday.
1: Did you ever think you'd get that much Don Shula facts about his high school where he graduated, what conference he was a part of in high school? Fantastic stuff there from Josh Boyer. And you can see the love he has for the sport, for the history, and for the modern day of NFL. So come celebrate the life of Don Shula on Saturday at 430 at Hard Rock Stadium. The free event is open to the public and will feature remarks from the Shula family with panel discussions from several Dolphins alumni. I've seen that list. It is long. It's extensive. It is impressive. Attending fans will also receive a special commemorative Don Shula 347 patch. Registration is now open at dolphins.com slash Don Shula. We're going to roll the outro here in just one second and then play the post-game segment, post-game show segment, talking about Byron Jones. But real quick on the Byron Jones thing, had a chance to look at his All-22 against Darren Waller on Uh, This Tuesday and and really focus on his game. I watched the game again on Monday and then focused on Byron Jones on Tuesday. And just the variety of things he can do from a coverage standpoint is what really stood out to me in terms of playing off, playing up on the line, attacking the point on bunch or stack or flipping the hips inside, outside, dealing with multi-move routes from Darren Waller, undercutting crossing routes, getting over the top on stick routes, not getting his you know, the backhand on the back of Darren Waller to turn him and get that pass interference. Running up the sideline and contending with high footballs against a player who has made a career so far of mossing individuals. That PBU he had was so impressive. Inside hand jam, playing off coverage, mirroring the coverage. He just did a little bit of everything on that tape. It was so damn impressive. I hope you guys can get a chance to go back and watch the All-22 and keep an eye on 24, moving all about the formation, inside, outside, slot, nasty splits, perimeter, wide, plus splits, negative splits, whatever it was, he was all over the field, and he had himself one hell of a football game. And frankly, I think he's been really good all season long so far here for your Miami Dolphins. With that in mind, we're going to go ahead and play the post-game show segment just after this. But first, Caroline, Daddy is coming home. You all please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at WingfieldNFL. Follow the team at Miami Dolphins. Check out the Fish Tank podcast. They have the Kendall Langford episode up right now. You won't want to miss that. Check out our YouTube channel for all the media availabilities and Miami Dolphins content, including Dolphins Today, with me and Joanna Torres. And, of course, MiamiDolphins.com. We have a top news story up there for you guys right now as well. Until next time, fins up. And guys, we almost had a chance to come out away from this game with lots of positives because we almost had a victory at the end of it. Maybe even a tie there at the end, but it doesn't go out that way. Dolphins fall 31-28. to 28 to the las vegas raiders and there was a lot of kind of unique happenstances in this game and that's how we're going to kick off this next segment talking about some things we can take away positively going forward things this dolphins team can possibly sustain that we saw today and one of those things comes from oj mcduffie here with regards to how we covered on that back end juice you saw something that we were pointing out all game long dolphins did something different on darren waller this time around
3: yeah you know remember last year how uh Roe was on him a lot and, and did a good job, but Roe just made plays and, and Carl made some throws that, you know, kind of exposed him. So this game, you, you, you can see that we play a lot of man-to-man. We played so much man-to-man. And that's a lot of the reason that Javon Holland was so deep, too, because we're playing man-free a lot. So you got a guy playing center field where everybody underneath is, is uh, you know, playing man-to-man. But we saw that this time they went with Byron Jones on Waller. And he did a pretty good job. I mean, Waller had a decent game, five catches for 54 yards on seven targets. But you also saw some PBUs from him. I wish we could get some, some interceptions from him every once in a while. You know, and they put, you know, they put Zayvon Howard mostly on Ruggs. You know, Ruggs had a nice game. He had a big play of 23 yards, but for the most part, he was under control. So, I mean, it was nice to see that, you know, they've got that game plan. But now remember this now, we, the amount of man we play, you're going to see a lot of picks, a lot of rubs. And we saw guys trying to – we saw, sure saw the Raiders trying to do that a lot, you know, trying to run some pick plays, natural pick plays. Uh, I thought the guy that really killed us more than anybody was Renfro. You know, he, he seemed to move the chains a lot and working on the inside. So I was working against guys, you know, you, you, know, you know, like that from the inside that we, we, we have in gardening. Um, so I don't know, Travis. I mean, I, I think it's a great game plan. I think moving forward, they're going to still work these inside guys more than anything. I don't know if we're going to run it. How many tight ends do we have? You know, I haven't really done my my scouting report on Indianapolis yet. If we have to worry about putting our best cover guys on their tight end or not, not, you know, I know they're probably. There's not a the whole
1: guy. lot like this guy. No, uh, there's not. There's
3: only a few in the league like that guy. Or so, like
1: this offensive compliment. I correct. Mean, Fair point.
3: Correct. But I think that no matter what, we're gonna continue doing what we do best. And that's play man to man defense. We'll put our best guys on their best guys, our you know, our next guys on some of the guys that can, you know, kinda of, kind of move the chain kind of guys. But I love the fact that, you know, Byron was up to the challenge. I love the fact that X is up to the challenge. Now we have to figure out a way to keep him under three hundred and eighty-six yards next time. Even oh, though it was man. more of a you know, again, a bend but not break kind of thing. It wasn't like long touchdown passes or anything like that from Carr. But at the same time though, man. The, the those chunk plays, the those chunk plays kept happening, and the drives kept continuing not get off the field.
1: Yeah, I was just so intrigued by that matchup because, like you mentioned last year, it was Rowe on Waller almost exclusively, and we saw Eric Rowe match up with uh, Foster Moreau, tight end number two there for the Raiders, and he had that push-off on the offensive pass interference, and Rowe was also in there rushing the passer, sticking his face in the fan against the running game as well, so they had different ideas, and I'm so intrigued by this, Seth, because Darren Waller came into this game with 26 targets, which led the National Football League, receivers, tight ends, running backs, or otherwise. I'd keep throwing to him if he was on my squad. Yeah. But what did we always hear? And I, I hate making these references because Brian Flores is not Bill Belichick. He's not a Patriots employee. He hasn't been for a long time. But what was the number one thing the Patriots always did well? They took away your take top away target. what you do
0: best, for sure.
1: And the Raiders all, you know, damn to hell. They were going to throw the ball to Darren Waller in the first two games, regardless of what the opposition did. But here comes Miami. And all of a sudden he's got, you know, relatively speaking for his usual production, has the clamps put on him. But that's where John Gruden, I thought, really had a hell of a game because OJ talked about it with Hunter Renfro. The only way you're going to get a favorable matchup on Xavier and Howard is to get him inside on the slot. That's not what he does best. He's best on the outside. They got him in there, and it got the Raiders a touchdown on third down. So hats off to John Gruden and that Raiders offense because they have plenty of weapons, Seth, and they went after those guys. And the Dolphins took away the top guy, but they just didn't have enough guns to come after him.
0: Well, that's it. That's what I was going to say. great game plan to take away what somebody else does best. I mean, that just seems like it makes sense. Not everybody has the personnel to do it. Right. Clearly, as Juice just said, the Dolphins came up with a plan to do that. The problem yeah. is, what do you give up, right? Any decision right. you make on the football field, you're leaving something else open. And unfortunately, they had a lot of weapons, and they were able to get the ball to them enough times. And, and you know, we said this, I, I said this at, at Bo Campers when we were uh, ha- having the, the lunch bunch, I, I knew the Dolphins going to have to score at least 24 points. I didn't know it was going to have to be 32 points to win the game. But you just knew playing the Raiders, you weren't going to hold them to two touchdowns. It just wasn't going to happen.
3: Right. You and, know, and, I, and I'm sorry, Travis, real quick, you know, it's, it's tough on outside guys to try to play inside. And we they were forced to do that a little bit today. You know, X not, he doesn't usually play inside. Byron doesn't usually play inside. The inside guys are used to playing inside. I remember like I was always refer to back in my day. Pack could play inside or outside, but Sam wasn't wasn't the inside kind of guy. Sam liked to play on the outside, you know. So, I mean, for those guys going there, and I think they did a, a decent job inside today, the uh, when they, you know, when they had to. But bottom line is, man to man is man to man. You know, you're not worried about dropping the zone, worrying about if you got curl to flat or if you got this assignment or that. You know, you get your man, you lock him down, man. And um, I thought they did a heck of a job. But I mean. What about those guys on our guys in man-to-man situations or zone situations? I didn't see a lot of separation again today, and that's—I don't
0: know if it's design, you know. That's what I was going to ask. What is it, Juice? Because yeah. you know the athletes are there, I, and I know, and you probably aren't going to want to call anybody out. I know that route running was something that you took to heart and you come from a long line of Nat Moore before you, right, or actually Duper Clayton and Nat Moore before you, Nat who learned it from from, uh, Warfield. Route running is something that that is critically important to you. (laughs) I know you joke about sometimes you have to when you don't have the speed or size. You better be a good route runner and have great hands. But I'm wondering why is it we heard separation from at halftime uh, from Coach Flores of the Patriots game. Correct. So separation has been a question. There are guys who can run. This is not a team that has a bunch of slow players in the wideout position. And then, you know, you've got Parker, who he's he's not a burner, but he can run, and he certainly can create separation with his size differential and the athleticism. Why is it not there? Yeah, and I
3: don't know. You know, I was always – in. I'm going to blame Travis for this. Let me tell you what. Is <laughs> It's Travis's fault, I'm the lack of separation? Because all I all I read all camp <laughs> I long know. was Twitter from Travis talking about uh, separation. The these guys Jinx. wide open and, you know, these guys running routes and, you know, all this stuff. down The ball down the field. You know, now I get, I watch the games live and I don't see what I Travis know. was talking about. Watch for you know while. what I mean? I don't know what Travis is <laughs> talking about, Big Seth. So, um, yeah, I, you know what? I think it's going to – I think things are going to change. Let me tell you, I think – what we saw towards the end of that game is what we're going to continue to see, I think, more in the future with our with our schemes, with our route running, with our guys getting down the field. I, they see something there, you know, and if we got guys now. When guys get one-on-ones and they get these 50-50 balls, we used to see Parker come down with them. We didn't see that today. Fuller had a chance. We didn't see that today. We got to get up there, and these guys have to make those type of – I think Gesicki had an opportunity. 50 50 balls, man. We got to turn them into 80 20s and, and make plays. So
0: I agree with that for sure. You have to win on those, especially guys who are paid to win in those moments. There's certain guys that that's what they do best, and they, they absolutely need to win more than they lose on those. And you're playing with your number two quarterback. He needs that help. Any, any quarterback does. But certainly when you're playing with your number two quarterback, no disrespect, Kobe, I'm just looking at the depth chart. When you're playing with your number two quarterback, you need to help him out. You need to bail him out. When he is fighting for his life back there and, and makes a great play to get the ball, to get out of trouble and get the ball there, bring the ball in. What, what I wanted to ask you, though, is, again, on the separation, you're talking about design, and you think that we're going to see more of what we saw towards the end of the game how much is that how much of that are they playing the clock at that point how much of that are they taking those chances and going down the field because it's overtime and are they going to dial it back again and start conservative as we think as we saw in this game it's
3: it's that's a that's a great question, Steph. I don't even know. How to answer I got that. one. Yeah. <laughs> Finally. Question. Well, I, you know I don't even know all the answers. <laughs> we we have to be able to, to do different things other than what we do because no matter what, the field's gonna get smaller and smaller every team we play if we continue to do what we do. I think what we showed at the end, even though some people might say, well, they might have been in preview or they're playing off or whatever, and we got the chance to get deep, we've got to open that, open the field up a lot earlier in the football game, which will also open up our run game. You know, if you got safeties that are, you know, three yards off the ball, five yards off the ball, and you got the, the free safety that's 10 yards off the ball, it's, it's impossible to run in there. So, in, in order to loosen that all up, we got to start sending some guys deep. We got to, we have to get, we have to get Mike going, Gasicki going deep. We I agree with that. We have to get our speed going deep. We've talked about it over and over again. We have to get our intermediate stuff, you know, not five, 10 yards, you know, 12 yards, 13 yards. That doesn't take long. You know, look, Tom Brady's done it with sometimes with with a free blitzer coming at him and be able to get it off for 12, 15-yard plays. <sighs> so we've got to figure out a way to get down the field vertical and get the ball off in a, in a, in a, in a limited time in terms of, you know, one less than two seconds. And it, it works, man. But I don't know how we get there. But you have to take those shots in order to give yourself those opportunities.
1: And you know what's interesting about it is that they did take those shots late in the game. Mm-hmm. And what happened late in the game? They moved the football. None of those shots were successful. But it changes the way the defense looks at you, right? They have to keep an eye deep. They have to start playing, like you mentioned, a Javon Holland twenty twenty five yards off the football. You have to account for more grass when you have those shots built into your offense. So I thought that was a good job of incorporating it more. Hopefully, it's a sign of things to come, Seth. You guys. Well,
0: is it as simple as that though? Is it as simple as well? It worked late in the game. It should work earlier. I mean, are the defenses playing differently as well in those situations? So. You know, is there more pressure on the defense at that point, Drew? So, I, is it is it clear is it that black and white? Is it that simple for us as fans to say, well, it worked late in the game; it should have worked in the first quarter.
3: Well, I mean, it worked. It worked all fourth pretty much, right? We had opportunities off the whole, whole fourth quarter. You know, what I mean, we were down the eleven points. I get it. You know, and then we got the, the field goal, but I think we were able to open it up a little bit towards the getting the fourth and twenty. Was that on? Was, was that overtime? On? No, that's fourth quarter. Fourth quarter. That's fourth quarter. Yeah. Yeah, that was in the fourth quarter.
0: Mm-hmm. That was yeah, all the so I'm going to gonna challenge that <laughs> one, fellas. I'm going to say Miami Dolphins at 627 in overtime, fourth and 20. Okay. Uh, And then Jacoby set to Mike Siggett, yeah. yeah. Well, there okay. you go. I'm on fire right now. He's right. right. <laughs> getting I, so. well, <laughs> I, I feel hey. like Jacoby right now, man. <laughs> yeah. The world is You're just right. crumbling Third around us. had to have it. Yeah,
3: had to have it and had to make a play there. I think um, – even in that play right there, I mean, it's going to be a little, they're going to be a little bit off on 4 from 20, of course. Right. But same time, though, man. I mean, in that last drive, in the eight minute drive, I mean, the uh, 82, 80, jeez, OJ, relax,
1: calm down.
0: <laughs> Deep breaths.
1: The
3: 82-yard drive, yeah. you know, I think we have some opportunities to get the ball
0: down the field then, too.
1: And I wanted to make this last point here because we talk about play calling and, you, you know, Coach, uh, Coach O, as it were, on the uh, sideline at the junior football games. There were some moments in this game that I thought they had some great calls. A two-point conversion call, Will Fuller's wide open. You'd love to see that. Third and seven rushing play for Miles Gaskin springs a big leak. What a great call that was knowing you're in four-down territory. And, again, you know, Juice is talking about picks all day long. The Raiders running pick plays, rub plays. And You talk about Coach O trying to think of – Things to sequence as a play caller in, in, in junior football. The swing pass to Miles Gaskin, I thought, was a great example of play sequencing because early in the game, Mike Gasicki runs a hookup route and Gaskin has the swing route. And I'm saying, get the ball to Miles. And you guys are saying, no, I'll take the completion. And I was like, I want the ball to Miles. <laughs> they came back with that same look and hit it. Or, well, they didn't hit it, but they had it open right. and had a chance to hit a big play up there as well. So there were some moments where I thought you could take away some encouraging stuff as far as the Dolphins play sequencing and their offensive structure. Speaking of takeaways, here, do, do we have to go to break, we'll, Travis? Let's come All back. All right, that we'll set. go to break. Final score. From God, Las Biff Vegas. is killing
0: me every time I'm starting to feel it.
1: Raiders 31, <laughs> Dolphins 28. You're listening to the fifth quarter postgame show on the Miami Dolphins Radio Network, brought to you by the Palm Beaches.